just desire right now that as our hearts have been uh, worshiping you, that right now our hearts would settle on you in hearing from you in your word, Lord. And Father, we know there's so many lessons here to be learned from as we, we look at this individual Balaam. But Lord, we also can learn um, uh, from the scriptures uh, the things that displease you and, and the things that we are to avoid. So Father, I do pray that you would just teach us tonight by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that we would be attentive to the things that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, as we are in this section of the book of Numbers, we are in that portion where the children of Israel are getting very uh, close to going into the promised land. They've been journeying for nearly 40 years out there in the wilderness. And of course, what we will see after we look at the prophecies of Balaam in chapter 26 is a new census that's going to be taken. Of course, we saw that first census in the second year of their exodus there in um, chapter 1 of the book of Numbers. And in that census, there were uh, 605,550 individuals, uh, those 20 years and above males, that were ready for war. And so it would be 605,448 that would end up dying in the wilderness because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. And that's one of the things we've seen in the book of Numbers, why they ended up in that wilderness wandering for 40 years. Dry, hot, barren conditions. They were ones, as we have seen, eight times murmured and complained against the Lord. They didn't believe the promises of the Lord. They, they weren't obedient to the commands of the Lord. And so one of the things that we have seen and in, in made application concerning our own lives is, one of the ways that we can end up in a wilderness-type experience in our own Christian lives is if we do the things that they were doing. That is, if we have a heart of unbelief, if we walk in disobedience to the Lord, if we're not established in the promises of God. And so we want to make sure that we know what God's Word has declared and that we are obedient to what the Word of God says to you and to me. And so that's the way that the Lord desires for us to live, and it's a way for us to enter into that life of abundance, that is, that life flowing with milk and honey, just experiencing the blessings of the Lord as we just walk with Him, established in His promises, and as we allow the Lord to work in our lives in a way that He desires. And so we see here that a new generation is going to go in. So they went to battle as they were coming up into the border of the promised land. They're coming up to the north from that wilderness of Paran and Sinai. And they are working their way north. And the Lord said that you're to go around Edom because they wanted to pass on the king's highway. And it was Moses that said to the king of the Edomites that we want to pass by. We won't go left. We won't go right. We won't eat your vineyards. We won't drink of your water. We just want to pass through your land. And it was the king of Edom that said, no, I will come against you. So the Lord did not have the children of Israel go to war against the Edomites. And rather, they went around, and they went around. And of course, as we saw in chapter 21, that it was the children of Israel that went to war against the Amorites. And of course, Bashan, King Og and King Shihon, those two kings were defeated very soundly. They come into the area of Moab. So the king of the Moabites, he hears about the children of Israel that are on his border, and he's very much afraid. And that's where we begin to look at this interesting individual who's called Balaam. Now, the king of the Moabites, Balak, as he sees the children of Israel coming into his area, he's very much afraid, as I said. Um, he said to the elders of Midian, this, this 
people, are, it's just going to defeat up. They're all around us. They're going to, uh, as an ox lips, uh, licks up the grass of the field, that's how they're going to be with us. They're just going to clean our clocks. And so what he does is he sends his elders, that is his princesses, to the area of Pethor. And there was a man named Balaam who was a prophet. And it's interesting because in chapter 22, we see that it says that he had a reputation, Balaam, that whoever he blessed, they would be blessed. Whoever he cursed, they would be cursed. And so go and send for Balaam, this prophet who is well known, some 300 miles away over in that area of the Chaldeans. You remember that it was Abraham that was called from his father's house, the house of the Chaldeans, and would come over into the land where the Lord said, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham, and I'm going to give you this land. But that area of the Chaldeans was known for their occultic practices. They were known for uh, their uh, divinations. Uh, They were astrologers. Uh, They had a cult, we know, from archaeological digs that uh, had this um, school for prophets and magicians and, and soothsayers and all of this. So that's always kind of been the center of false worship and false prophets and, and, and astrologers. And it was back in this ancient time, we also know it's the same way, when later on that area would be known as what? As Babylon. And it was in Babylon that Daniel would be ministering that it was Nebuchadnezzar that would call for who? His magicians and his seers and his astrologers to interpret a dream. So that area there has always been an area where occultic and cultic practices have been going on for a very long time. And so here is Balaam. He's known all throughout the land, and they send for him, and he's an individual that's sometimes kind of hard to analyze because it seems like at some points, as we saw in chapter 22, he seems to have some sincerity and sensitivity towards the Lord. Here are these elders of of Moab and uh, the king of the Moabites, Balak, that sends for them and says, hey, we will pay you handsomely if you will come with us and you curse this people that came out of Egypt, the children of Israel. And so it was Balaam that said, I need to seek the Lord to see if he would have me to go. And in chapter 22, of course, we saw that it was the Lord that told Balaam that you are not to go, you are not to curse them, for my people are blessed. And that was the direct word of God given to Balaam. But we know that Balaam was tempted because of the wages that were being offered to him. And so those messengers went back to the king of Moab, that is Balak, and said, listen, he said that God told him not to come. So Balak says, go back, send more men, offer him even more uh, money and, and more of a wages. And it was there that, again, it seemed like there was some sensitivity in Balaam's answer. He said, listen, the Lord has told me not to go. But then there was a turning point. And you recall in chapter 22 and verse 19 that it was Balaam that said, let me inquire the Lord to see what he might say about this. Well, the Lord had already spoken, hadn't he? The Lord said, don't go, don't curse them, and that I've blessed my people. So Balaam, as we know, he is mentioned in eight books of the Bible. He is mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2. He is mentioned along with false prophets and, and false teachers. And there in 2 Peter chapter 2, we know that Peter talks about the way of Balaam. And the way of Balaam was uh, for wages of unrighteousness. We know that Jude in his little epistle talks about the error of Balaam, and that was greediness. 
We know that Jesus would specifically talk about Balaam. There in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, when he was writing that letter to the church at Pergamos concerning the doctrine of Balaam that we're going to see here in chapter 25. So every time Balaam is mentioned in the New Testament, it is not in a positive light. It's in a negative light. That he is numbered there with the false teachers and prophets. We're going to see that God's going to prophesy through Balaam. And we've already seen the first two, haven't we? These beautiful prophecies that are flowing from Balaam. But I personally do not believe that Balaam was one that was a follower of the Lord. Now, there are those that will disagree that said that he was a prophet of God and certainly speaking the words of the Lord, as we are going to continue to see here. But I don't think he, he was a true believer in the Lord. We see that he's using divination and occultic practices as he is uh, there trying to curse the children of Israel. But yet again, we do see that sensitivity. He is saying to Balak, listen, I can only say what God has told me to say. So we saw his journey as he went uh, from Pethor over to where the king of Moab was. And we saw that he's riding on his donkey. And of course, we saw that Balaam's donkey speak to him as he saw the angel of the Lord that was before him. And it was the Lord that said that your ways are perverse before me, Balaam. And so again, we're going to see that Balaam, every time that the Lord speaks of him, is not in a positive light. So we saw the first two prophecies as it would be the king of Moab, Balak, that took Balaam up on a mountain, didn't he? And he said, it's about time you come. I want you to curse these people. And it was Balaam that said, but the Lord has told me that I can only speak what he puts into my mouth. And so that's what happens. They take Balaam up there on the mountain of Baal, overlooking the children of Israel. You remember when we were talking about the book of Numbers talks about order, how the children of Israel, how they came out of Egypt in orderly ranks. Don't think of the Ten Commandments movement, Char Charlton Heston's, where they're just a big mass of people coming out of Egypt. We're talking about two and a half to three million people coming out into the wilderness. They went out in orderly ranks, and in Numbers chapters 2 and 3 and 4, it talks about how they were set up their camps, the census. And as you look at that census, the way that they were set up in camp, it would be like the form of a cross. And there is, you know, Balaam up there. And he's about ready to prophesy, and he sees the children of Israel camped out there, and it would make the form of a cross there. And it's wonderful for you and I to know that as we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and put our faith and trust in him, you know what? The enemy can't curse us. The enemy will come against us, try to tempt us. But as we know from Colossians chapter 2, that the handwriting requirement has been washed out, and we know that the principalities and powers have been disarmed or stripped of their authority over us. And so greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so we have the blessing of the Lord. We have uh, the Lord that is with us. And we have seen that as the first and second prophecies were uttered, that it was told to Balak, as Balaam would speak these prophecies, that, listen, you can't curse God's people, that they are blessed and they belong to him. And God's going to continue to bless them numerically. And we know that the Lord sees his people and is with them, and he brings them out of Egypt, and there's no iniquity found in the children of Israel. We talked about all what that means. And so God is with them, Balak, and you cannot curse them. Because my blessing is with them. 
And so that's where we left off. The first two prophecies given. There's two more prophecies that we're going to see. But let's begin to read at verse 27 of chapter 23. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come and I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. I want to draw attention to verse 27. Notice here that Balak, he's already been told, hasn't he? You cannot curse these people. God's blessing is upon them. So what we see here is that it is Balak that says to Balaam, uh, why don't we try again the third time? Let's just go to a different place, and maybe it will please God that you may curse them for me. He doesn't get it, does he? God has declared very clearly that you're not going to be able to curse them. Balaam, you're only going to speak the words that I put in my mouth. But see, he is an unbeliever, and he doesn't belong to the Lord. And so he doubts the word of the Lord, and and certainly we know that those of the world who are not believers, they will not uh, take heed to the word of God, and they doubt the word of God. But I pray for you and I as Christians that we would never doubt the word of God in our lives. That when God declares something that we know it's true, and that we would hold it true in our hearts, and that it would be worked out in our lives. Then when the Lord says that here are my commands, and here are my ways, and here's how I desire to bless you, that we would take that as truth, and that we would have that in our hearts, and again, what's in your heart is going to be worked out in your life. And so here is is Balak, he doesn't get it. He's saying, well, let's try again a third time. Maybe it'll please God to, to curse them. Well, God's already declared in his prophecy and in his word that is spoken, that they are not going to be cursed. And Balak, you can't curse them. He even said in the first prophecy, you recall, that Balak, I know what you're up to, and it's not going to work. And so here we see that, again, they go through this building, uh, these seven altars, prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. It, it, it is mentioned, this burnt offering, it is a pagan practice of these offerings that are given. Again, as we look at the offerings in the book of Leviticus, there is no offering that was prescribed in the way that, is, that they are doing here. And so this is not an offering to the Lord. This is a pagan ritual that they went through in this altar and the God that Balak would turn to. And so chapter 24, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as the other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness. So again, we see that Balaam was one that used sorcery. He used divination. That was his practice. So that's why I doubt that he was one that was really a a believer or belonged to God initially. He was one that probably, as many in those areas, believed in many gods, polytheistic. And and maybe the God of Israel was one that, that he worshiped. We don't know for sure. But he did use sorcery and divination and occultic kinds of practices. So Balaam raised his eyes, verse 2, and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Peor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, he falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, verse 7, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. It's a very beautiful prophecy, isn't it? 
And in this prophecy, he is speaking about the abundant blessing of God upon the children of Israel. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Jacob, again, a term for God's people, the children of Israel. Your dwellings, the valleys that stretch out and gardens by the riverside. You read this and it just makes you want to go up in the mountains, doesn't it? And sit by a stream and just be blessed. And, and so he's talking about how God is, is going to bless them, that they are going to possess the promised land, that God is with his people. But know this, as, as you think about this and, and you look at this and the poetic terms that are being used here in the scriptures, is speaking of a place of security and protection, a place of peace, isn't it, in this beautiful prophecy? And you see, that's where the Lord desires to bring you and me, into that place of just rest, in that place of, of uh, Lord, where he provides for us, in that place of just peace that rules in our hearts. And, and just knowing the blessings of the Lord because we are, again, established in his promises. And Lord, I believe in you. And Lord, I just want to abide in you and know you. And I just want to enjoy you, to love you, Lord, and to follow after your ways. And so here talking about the blessings and, again, the abundance of God upon the children of Israel. But verse 7, I want to draw attention. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, Agag... When you think about this, he may, that name, ring a bell with you. And that would be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Some 300 years after this point, when the first king of Israel, Saul, was told by the Lord there in 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want you to go against the Amalekites. And Saul, what I want you to do is I want you to destroy the Amalekites. I want you to even destroy the sheep and the oxen. And it was Saul that sent out his troops and it says that they utterly destroyed the Amalekites except for Agai, the king of the Amalekites. Interesting. So I think that here, as the Amalekites, we've already seen them, haven't we? They were ones that did battle with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord said, Saul, because of what the Amalekites did to my people in the wilderness and doing battle with them and also sneaking up on the rear of the the congregation and picking off the weak and those who were in the rear that I want you to go to battle against them and so that's what Saul would do and I think there's an important lesson that the Amalekites that we're going to see are a picture of the flesh because the Amalekites were ones that would pick off the children of Israel we know that as Joshua went to war there in the book of Exodus that Moses was on the hill holding up his hands and as long as his hands were up that they were winning, the children of Israel. But his arms went down, then the Amalekites would win. So there was two individuals that would hold up the arms of Moses as Joshua was doing battle, and there was victory. And in that story, we talked about how when we in our own lives, that the flesh will rear up its ugly head. And, and there's that battle with the flesh. And it seems like when you are one that's kind of straggling, you know, kind of behind where the Lord wants you to be or isolated or whatever it might be, that's when the flesh can very easily begin to attack you and, and begin to really, you know, come against you and, and tempt you. And we know that it is prevailing prayer that helps us in those times and defeat the flesh when it begins to, again, uh, rear up its ugly head against you and I and tempt us into fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And so we've talked about those things, but it's interesting that here comes Saul, back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. He comes back with Agai, the king of the Amalekites, and some of the best of the sheep and the oxen. 
Samuel the prophet has already been told by the Lord that, you know what, I'm taking the kingdom away from Saul, giving the kingdom to another one who has a heart after me, and that would be David. So it would be Samuel that went out and met Saul and said, Saul, why didn't you do the command of the Lord? According to Saul, he did. But it was Samuel that said, who's this individual? That's Agai, the king of the Amalekites. Well, what are this, this bawling of sheep I hear in my ears? Well, I brought those sheep back to sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord had very clearly said, destroy all the Amalekites, destroy all the sheep and the oxen. And what Saul did is he brought back this trophy, and what he did was he wanted to try to sound spiritual, but he did not perform the command of the Lord. Now here's the, the kicker. It would be about 20 years later. You remember as you finish 1 Samuel and then you move into 2 Samuel, there's the death of Saul, right, on Mount Gilboa. And who was it that killed Saul? It was an Amalekite. And that's why I say the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. Because you can have what seems to be talking your spiritual talk. Lord, I'm doing almost everything that you want me to do, but I got this little agai. I got this little agai in my life. And that's why the Lord says, I want you to do away with any provision of the flesh. That I want you to deal with sin radically. That I want you to turn to me. And then Paul would write in Galatians, that walk according to the Spirit, and the promise is you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So this, this battle that we do have with the flesh, don't we? So what we do is we get rid of those things that provide for the flesh to be a part of our lives or come into our hearts or, you know, into our homes, whatever it might be. Get rid of the ad guys is what I'm saying. Don't come, you know, hey, I do pretty good, but I got this little ad guy here. Because... Over time, it's going to do you in. And so Agai here, the king of the Amalekites, is probably a title, just like Pharaoh was a title, just like Caesar was a title. Agai was probably a title of the Amalekites. And in the fourth prophecy, we're going to see how the, the uh, prophecy is going to be given, how the Lord's going to defeat the Amalekites. But verse 8, God brings them out of Egypt, has strength like that wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall arouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Verse 10 here, or verse 9, excuse me, uh, reiterates what God told Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3. Whoever blesses you and your descendants, Abraham, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And so verse 10, Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. There, now therefore flee to your place. I said, I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. So verse 12, Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you have sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. So again, it seems to, that Balaam has this sensitivity towards the Lord, and that's why there are those who said, Yeah, that he was a true prophet of the Lord that was given in to covetousness and given in to greediness. And so... Um, he told Balak, listen, I told you when I first came to you, I can only speak what the Lord has told me to speak. And so verse 14, and now indeed I'm going to my people, come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So in other words, what he's saying is here's a freebie. Okay, 
So here's the fourth prophecy that he's going to speak, verse 15. So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Peor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, he falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. I batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So verse 17, in this beautiful, beautiful prophecy, here's Balaam that's prophesying about the coming Messiah. In verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. He's speaking about out of this nation is going to rise the Messiah, is going to come on a scene, and that he is going to rule and reign over the nations as Balaam has been prophesying. You know, it's interesting. Think about this. In Matthew chapter 2, in the Christmas story, that after the birth of Jesus, that it was the Magi that came from the east. They would come from this area of Pethor, wouldn't they? They would come from that area of Babylon, is what many scholars believe. And it's interesting because the discussion is, how did those Magis, who were Gentiles, who did not have the prophecies of the Scripture, how did they know to look for the star of David, the star of Jesus, that is? They think perhaps through this prophecy. That somehow that this was recorded of Balaam, that a star shall count him out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Could it be that Balaam would record this prophecy that he gave and would take it back to that area and it would be learned from the magicians and again from the astrologers to be watching for a star that this is going to be one who's going to rise out in Israel, a God that's going to uh, be born and to look for that star. And so perhaps the Magi would learn from this prophecy. Also, they could have learned from Daniel's prophecies as well because Daniel, particularly in Daniel chapter 9, gave that incredible prophecy concerning Daniel's 70 weeks and then when Messiah is going to come. So they could have very well been familiar with some of the prophecies recorded. Somehow they knew to look for a star, didn't they? And so they come to Herod the Great and they said, We have seen a star. Tell us where the king of the Jews is that we may worship him. What interests me is this. The religious leaders there in Jerusalem that were summoned by Herod the Great who said, you know what? I got these magi that are coming in to Jerusalem looking for a king. Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? They said, well, just right down the street in in Bethlehem, which was really only about 10 miles from Jerusalem. These magi travel for hundreds of miles to come, and they end up worshiping Jesus as they come to the house there where Jesus was in Bethlehem. It was a house. It wasn't the night Jesus was born. It was sometime after that. They come and they worship Jesus. It's interesting, the religious leaders who had been looking for the Messiah, who had the prophecies, wouldn't even travel 10 miles to go check it out. So they knew somehow that there was going to be a star, perhaps from this prophecy here in verse 17. Verse 18, Edom shall be a possession. Seers also his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does violently. Uh, violently. Verse 19, Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. And then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. And then he looked at the Kenites, and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rocks. 
Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Ashur carries you away captive? And so speaking about that time when the Assyrians would come in and take them away captive. And then verse 23, he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Ashur and afflict Abur, and shall uh, Amalek until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed from and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Now here's the interesting thing. Keep note here in verse 25. Here is uh, these prophecies. The end's going to come for Edom. The end's going to come to Amalek. The end's going to come for the, uh, uh, the Canaan, uh, Canaanites. And we see that Balaam would then go to his home, and then Balak would go to his home as well. So here is Balaam 0 for 4, Right? Balak wanted him to curse the children of Israel for beautiful blessings and prophecies that are spoken through Balaam, chapter 25. Now Israel remained in the Kea grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So we see these four beautiful prophecies given to children of Israel. It didn't work. Balaam goes home. Balak goes home. Children of Israel are ready to go in the promised land. And all of a sudden here, we go into chapter 25, and these people are worshiping Baal. And we're going to see they're going to commit all kinds of sexual immorality. So you think, what happened here? Well, here's what happened. We learn again from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, that it was the doctrine of Balaam. In chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord speaking to that compromising church, the church of Pergamos, he says, I have a few things against you. And that is because there are those that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel um, to eat things, sacrifice the idol, and to commit sexual immorality. So in that, it kind of gives us the rest of the story here. I think what happened is Balaam went home, Balak went home, Balaam started getting th thinking about it. Here the scripture says, Jude says, that he was full of greed. That Second Peter talks about how he desired the wages of unrighteousness. So Balaam goes home and says, boy, there's a lot of money. That's really what enticed him to go and, and to speak uh, in the first place. Because he kept entertaining this, these offers that the king of Moab was given to him. So he goes home and he's thinking about it. Man, how can I get those wages of unrighteousness? I know, I'll come up with a plan. So he goes back to Balak, and according to what the book of Revelation tells us, he told Balak this, listen, I can't curse them, I'm 0 for 4, God won't allow me to do this, so I can't curse them so they can be judged externally, but this is what you do. You get your young Moabite women, tell them to get all gussied up, tell them to get all prettied up and go into the camp of the children of Israel take their idols with them, introduce idol worship, worship of Baal, and seduce the men into sexual immorality. And then God's going to have to deal with them internally. And that's what happened. That's the doctrine of Balaam, as we see mentioned there to the compromising church, the church of Pergamos. So that's what happened. So he goes back probably, and the reason I think that he goes back to teach Balak this, because we're going to see in Numbers chapter 31, when God tells the children of Israel, go against Moab, the Moabites, the Midianites, and I want you to deal with them, that the enemies of God, some of them are listed there, and guess who's listed? It's Balaam. So he goes back to get his wages of unrighteousness. 
And he sure didn't enjoy it very long, did he? Because it's going to be a very short time that he's going to end up being killed by the children of Israel. And he put that stumbling block there to introduce idol worship and sexual immorality. And so here we see that the women come down in the camp. We see that here is this Baal worship that begins to go on. Now, Baal was a false Canaanite fertility god and, and um, involved sexual immorality in a big way in this false worship of Baal. And as you look at the history of Israel, they just seem to be enticed to ba- worship Baal. You know that in the days of the judges that they would worship Baal. They would be caught up in this cycle of worshiping these Canaanite gods, these false gods, and then they would call out upon the Lord. But after King David came King Solomon. After King Solomon was King Rehoboam, his son. And it was Rehoboam that the children of Israel came to him and said, Listen, you need to ease up on us. All these taxes and everything that's a burden. And so it was Rehoboam that said, You haven't seen anything yet. I'm really going to to be a big burden to you guys. So the ten northern tribes split off and became the house of Israel, didn't they? Down south was the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that became the house of Judah. And there, the first king of Israel, as you read those chapters in First and Second Kings, was a man by the name of Jeroboam. And he introduced idol worship as he had two temples that were built dedicated to the golden calf. So they plunge into idol worship, but later on they would worship Baal, and that would be the time of Elijah, and he would challenge the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that on Mount Carmel? We know that it was King Ahab and his wife Jezebel that made a temple, constructed a temple there in Samaria in the capital of, of the ten northern tribes. So they were ones that were enticed to Baal worship all the time. And I mentioned this, I believe, last week, that it was those high places that you see mentioned in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles particularly when you go through the book of Chronicles that speak specifically and only about the kings of Judah, that some of those good kings that did what was right in the sight of the Lord did not take down those high places. You, you remember reading those in the scriptures? We talked about that. Well, those, those high places, those wooded areas were places where the people went and they worshiped Baal. They worshiped Astroth. They worshiped Moloch. Matter of fact, it got so bad that they were sacrificing their own children on the arms of Moloch. And those high places, those, those wooden groves were places where they burned incense to those false worships, uh, false idols, and they would commit sexual immorality, and, and that's where it took place. And so those kings, the Lord's desire was for them to destroy those high places, those wooded groves. And so again, a lesson for you and for me, don't have any high places, don't have any of those places in your heart, in your home, in your lives. Get rid of them. So you don't have the temptation to go to them and sin against the Lord. So here was this Baal worship and and this immorality that's taken place that's being introduced to the children of Israel. In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So what we see here is judgment would come to these offenders. And we know that it was there in verse um, 6 that one of the children of Israel 
came and presented this Mennonite woman in the sight of Moses there at the tabernacle. Remember at the tabernacle was Moses and was the tribe of Levi where they camped out and the priest ministered. And so he brings this Mennonite woman and it wasn't like he was saying, okay, Moses, will you meet my girlfriend here? It wasn't like that at all. What it's saying here in the sight of Moses and sight of all the congregation is that they were engaged in sexual immorality right before Moses and the children of Israel, flaunting their sin. We do see that in our society today, that we live in a society where people like to flaunt their sin. So here we see that, that this had spread rampant throughout the camp, this false idol worship and, and immorality that's taken place. So verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And so here is Phinehas. He's the son of Eleazar, who's the son of Aaron. Eleazar at this time is the high priest. You recall in chapter 20, Aaron, uh, 20, Aaron had passed on. Eleazar is the high priest. Phinehas, in his zeal here, that he ends up um, taking a javelin and, and putting it through the spear or through the uh, bodies of this man and this woman. You and I, our weapons, as we stand for righteousness, is the word of God and prayer and loving people enough to give them truth, isn't it? And what we need to do as we see those around us or those who are involved in, in sin, whatever it might be, to love them enough to give them truth, the truth of God's word, and to be praying for them. That's our weapons today. And I pray that we would have a zeal, a, a zeal in a godly way and in a humble way. You know, I was talking to somebody today who has a family member that wanted to talk to, but how do I do that? And, and it seems like it's always this argument and confrontation and all this going on. And I said, you know what, just express your love to your family member. They, I care about you. And I want you to know truth. And, and I want you to know what God declares. For you know him and to have a relationship with him. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it was Timothy that was told by Paul that as you are teach, be one that is teaching the word of God, not in a quarrelsome way, but in humility, able to teach those that God may grant them repentance. And so what we want to do is we want to, yes, stand firm on the word of God. We want to stand firm for righteousness, don't we? We want to have a zeal for the Lord. But it's done in a way where we are telling people and showing people the love of Jesus Christ, not compromising, right? And that we are ones that we are praying for them and that we are giving them truth. And that's what I hope that we do. Because I know every single one of us that, that we have opportunity to share with others that perhaps are involved in things that are contrary to what God's word says, involved in sin or whatever it might be. That we have opportunity to give them correction that, Lord, open up their eyes and their hearts to you because you want to bless them as they come to you, as they repent, as they turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness and, and your blessing and, and the promises are for you and for them who turn their hearts to Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure that we give people the truth. Our weapons, again, prayer and the word of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, and loving people as we give them the word of God. So verse 12, Therefore say, Behold, I... 
I'll back up verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I will give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So here's this covenant of peace that is given to him. And one thing for you and for I, to really have peace in our lives. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross, relationship with the Lord. But we also have the peace of God. And the peace of God ruling in our hearts comes by, again, trusting in God's word, walking in obedience, looking to him, just abiding in Christ, experiencing the blessings of Christ. I don't know about you, but, but I'm sure for most of you, if not all of you, that there's that real peace of God that is in your heart. And I know at times that we get anxious, don't we? And I know at times that, that we do uh, struggle and things like that. But it would be, Paul the Apostle, that would say in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but through everything with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That is, give your supplications to God with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you go to him and look to his word and abide in Christ and that peace that rules in our hearts as we just continue to trust in the Lord. So this covenant of peace that's given to them, verse 14, in the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Shalu, the leader of the father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Zer, who was head of the people of the father's house in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you and their schemes, by which they seduced you to the matter of Peor and the matter of Kozbi, the daughter of the leader of the Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. So we will see in chapter 31 that they will go to war against the Midianites. Chapter 26, we will see the second census that is taken. It's a long chapter. It's 65 verses, so we won't go through it today. And then what we'll see more of the laws that are given to the children of Israel. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time of Bible study. And, Lord, I pray for us tonight that as we learn from your word, even in the book of Numbers, a, a book that is so largely ignored by Christians, that we can see how important it is for us to walk in your ways, to have that peace that rules in our hearts, to trust in you, Lord, to be one that just continually looks to know you more and what your word declares to us. That, Lord, that we would not desire to walk away from that or do contrary to what your word declares, that we would be established in your promises, and, Lord, that we would know that you're with us and that you love us. Father, I pray that if any of us have an agai that is in our lives, as we war against the Amalekite, the flesh, in this world, because our war is the flesh and the world and the enemy that comes against us, I pray that as we worship right now, that, Lord, those who in their hearts are struggling, perhaps, that they would just confess it and give it to you tonight. And Lord, that you would just minister to their hearts, that you fill their hearts with your spirit. And Lord, that you would strengthen them and that you would help them. 
we know that your word declares that you are available, a very present uh, help in time of need. That means you're available here tonight, desiring to hear from us. And Lord, that we would be ones, perhaps if anyone here that is anxious and the peace of God has been robbed from them, that we know that we can, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let our requests be known to you. And Lord, that you will be one that will remind us of your goodness and faithfulness. Lord, that we would be ones that would, again, look to you for our needs, our provision, that we would look to you to guide us and direct us in every area of our lives. Father, as we worship right now, that you would just continue ministering to your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.